Coming up on this week's show, how you can own the rarest arcade cabinet ever. A new Mario movie is on the way. And we talked to Brian Baglow about GTA and the rise of Rockstar. This week's show is brought to you by Packed Coffee, flexible coffee plants delivered to your door. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 242, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another Geek Out session all about retro gaming and video games from way back in the day, technology and all the stories that have been happening over the last seven days in the world of retro. Actually, I was reading a story that was all over the news this week, um, a new report that Spotify have done. And apparently, over the summer on Spotify, they've seen a massive rise in people listening to 80s and 90s music, essentially because I think, you know, people want to escape 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just trying to get into this, like, euphoria of the not in the year 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's where we fit in. A little bit of escapism for the next hour or so. We can relive those golden days, you know, of video games back in the day. And also, we're joined by a special guest, like we are every week. Now, today we're going to be joined by someone who uh, was behind one of the biggest gaming franchises, not only back then, but also also continuing today as well. We're going to be joined by Brian Baglow, who of course was at DMA and then at Rockstar as well. Yeah, so we've had Mike Daly on the show before. and Mike was a kind of programming genius behind GTA 1, the original Grand Theft Auto. And this week we've got Brian Baglow on. Now, Brian was the actual writer for it, so he did a lot of the ideas for missions. Um, you may remember there was a lot of kind of dirty Harry style gangsters in there that you would meet. And, uh, you know, you needed a reason to go around nicking these cars. But also he did some additional audio for it and whipped up the controversy. So he was doing the PR for the whole of Grand Theft Auto. And if you remember, that campaign was absolutely mental. It was in the news, <laughs> like the most controversial game that ever came out. So he worked on GTA 1 and 2 doing that and then moved on to Rockstar, and now he's working with the Scottish Games Network. So we're going to talk Scottish gaming a bit, because the home of GTA was in Scotland, of course. Yeah, and if you're talking about games that had a massive impact in you know video game history, because the 90s, it was an interesting time, because obviously we had stuff like Mortal Kombat and Night Trap that were responsible for bringing in like the age ratings, but then when GTA came out, I just remember like you know all the... Uh, the Mary Whitehouse Brigade, as they were back then, just going into a meltdown over that game. And also the soundtrack was really amazing because it was the first time you had that kind of full CD audio and they really used it. So they had the radio stations where you could get into a car and there were all different varieties of music. And that standard has kind of gone on to lots of other games and stuck with the GTA series really until today. So Brian Baglow is going to be our guest. We'll talk all about the inside story on GTA 1 and 2, life at DMA Designs and Rockstar, and much more. He'll be on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now let's get straight into the stories this week, because actually there's been so much Nintendo news and something that had Joe practically wetting himself with excitement. (laughs) They are going to be making another Mario movie. But will it be as good as your favourite film ever, Super Mario Brothers? No, it won't be. I love that. You always drop me in it like Joe's been wetting himself. (laughs) He's been frothing for this. You have, don't lie. So I saw this, funny enough, I was watching the PlayStation 5 um, launch video thing last night. And um, funny enough, I saw the Mario movie news pop up while I was watching that. And I was like, oh, Nintendo are trying to drop some news while PlayStation are as well. 
So yeah, this is really cool. I'm guessing it's coming off the back of the success of the Sonic the Hedgehog film. Yeah. But essentially, Nintendo announced yesterday, it's come from their corporate management policy briefing, that they are making a Super Mario movie, which is set for release in 2022. And that Shigeru, I'm going to say his name now, Miyamoto, I'll just say that. <laughs> just <laughs> he, a surname term. That's just, just a surname terms. That's all we're on at the moment. Um, he is producing it. And he does have a hand in the story and he's got a hand in like the production and everything like that. So hopefully it will be legit. And it's being, being brought to us by, is it Illuminati? They're called, not Illuminati, Illumination. The Illuminati. Joe's starting rumours now. <laughs> it's being brought to us by Illumination, who's the company behind like Minions and stuff like okay. that. So I'm assuming it's, gonna be a little bit like sonic the hedgehog film you know kind of fart jokey and stuff like that and i'm assuming it's probably going to be an animated film they'll say it's like live action but it'll be like the lion king film where it's it's cgi if that makes sense I yeah, yeah according to this article it, it does say it's animated actually okay yeah, cool. an animated so, film. Yeah. yeah i think uh, it's interesting having uh miyamoto on board because he's yeah. always kind of ensured a high quality with matt rio mm. so i think his standard of high quality is actually going to go through this so maybe we won't get a really kind of cheap one done well, you know they've only done it once and that was big budget before wasn't and, it so. and, and the guy who, um, I forget his name, um, but the founder of Illumination has said, you know, he's got his hand in it as well. And he said, you know, he's kind of glad that the Mario film was made in 1993 because now they can one-up it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not going to be too hard to one-up critics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try and one-up what most people class as one of the worst movies ever made. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Set your ambitions a bit higher. Exactly. <laughs> so, will you miss Bob Hoskins in this new movie then? Well, this is the thing. I mean... Um, I wonder if they're going to get... What's his name? The the voice actor for Mario. Oh, Charles Martinet. Yeah, there we go. Charles Martinet. We got there eventually. I'm interested to see if he's going to be the voice of Mario. Oh, he's got to be. They can't change the voice. they're going to go for a proper but... voice talent. Do you know what I mean? Like a proper like superstar or something. What, what about Danny DeVito? Instead? <laughs> 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 to be fair, when I was a kid, I always got Danny DeVito and Bob Hoskins confused. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. I actually. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. We're finally getting a movie that hopefully will do Mario a bit of justice. You know, after the Sonic movie, which actually there's a new Sonic movie in production now, isn't there? They're making a follow-up to yeah, that. Yeah, they're making so. a follow-up to it, aren't they? So... Maybe there'll be a that'll be out in 2022 as well, and there'll be playground discussions again. Which one's better, <laughs> Mario versus Sonic? Like going back to 1990 all over. Yeah, again. <laughs> you know what? They could actually do a really good marketing campaign with that. Yeah, like we've been friends for 20 years, but not now. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, you know, we recorded um, a couple of shows together uh, before last week. So I had a week off last week, which is lovely, just, you know, recharge my batteries and everything. But it did mean that we missed out on the massive Super Mario 3D news that I think actually, it, it literally broke about half an hour after we finished recording the second show. Uh, but, I mean, at the time this show comes out on Friday, the games are going to be out. Super Mario 3D All-Stars, of course, going to be three games in there. So you've got Mario 64, uh, Galaxy Sunshine as well. And a lot of people have been really excited about this. But actually, there have been a few leaks a bit earlier on this week. And some people reckon that there's something a little bit not all that good about this. So apparently it's running on like an emulation platform or something. Yeah. So what made me laugh about this was, I can't remember which one of us posted it in the group chat, but it was literally half an hour, like you say, after we'd finished recording. And, like, I remember, like, Ravi was just like, yeah, it'll be emulation straight away. And he's always bloody right on these things. (laughs) So um, somebody called Oatmeal Dome has reported that it leaked about a week ago, a couple of days early, 
Um, and essentially it is, it's, it's all kind of running on emulation. So Mario 64 is running on an N64 emulator on the Switch. And then Galaxy and Sunshine are running on a Wii emulator. However, with that in mind, Galaxy, even though it's running on an emulator, it's running on the Switch hardware, but then the audio is running through the emulator, which I think is really right. strange. So I don't really they, know why they're doing that. They found this out because they kind of looked at the original code and saw mm. what 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 was happening, and it was loading loading ROMs essentially. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's interesting because there's that Wii and GameCube emulator, but then there's also this N64 one, and it makes me think like maybe this is just a a cheap, quick job by Nintendo and. Also, I found it really interesting that they're limiting numbers of this release. And I was thinking, why are they limiting numbers? Is it because um, the factories aren't available at COVID to print that many? Like, there's a limit on the physical print numbers. But then I noticed they're going to limit the online digital version as well. Which is crazy. Yeah, Yeah, which is really confusing for me. But ultimately, I think, like, they might be able to, you know, use this as an exploit to put other ROMs inside. I was literally, yeah. as you were explaining yeah. that, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if they're testing the water to then kind of branch out for more kind of ROMs and stuff like that to go online, you know, in the in the, in the the eShop and stuff like that. Well, well, they've always been scared of the virtual console and this mm. kind of shows that there isn't much of a virtual console going on if they're using emulators. So they've probably not got that function, but they've been really worried about opening the Switch up. Um to these kind of things because they want to sell these titles individually, don't they? They want to yeah. sell the N64 stuff uh, individually. So it could be really interesting, just like that PS4 one that we covered recently um, where they found a bit of code actually in there that was just loading up an emulator and they managed mm. to get other stuff into the uh, PlayStation 1 emulator. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see once the game is out. Like you say, like Dan says, we're recording this on the Thursday, so it'll be out by the time this episode's out on the Friday. But be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks, once more people get their hands on it, how many people are kind of going to, you know, open it up and stuff like that and see what's going on and play around with the ROMs. And, you know, before we know it, we'll probably have Galaxy 2 running in the ROM and stuff like that. Now, I've heard, Joe, that a few people are saying this is going to be the worst like the way that they've done this with the code is this is going to be the worst um, ported or coded thing for the Switch. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because they're saying it's so lazy by oh just putting the emulator thing on. So I don't know, if is is this a weird approach from Nintendo? Have they oh. just dropped quality for this release? Or? Yeah, hopefully it's just a one-off or hopefully there's something more to it, like you say, and it's... I don't know. It's a bit. It's a bit of a strange one, to be honest. But I think, if I read rightly, it's been handled by Nintendo of Europe or something like that. Okay. So I don't know whether that's had something to do with it. So I think there's is- some kind of COVID effect that's going on here that they're not talking about that somehow somehow made them rush it or or, or affected production. I mean, you know, being nintendo game players for decades now we all know that nintendo generally does have quite a high bar when it comes to quality Mm. control i mean the fact that it is emulation means that they're going to play like the originals i guess and i mean there are a lot of people who are complaining that you know that wish it was actually full hd kind of remakes you know for like modern platforms which would have been nicer but some people are also saying you know it's quite curious that they're actually picking the original nintendo 64 version which obviously had you know some problems with the camera that often got stuck on there as well and there was actually a remake for the the DS wasn't there a few years ago yeah, some people like, like why didn't they just use that version yeah yeah so, so why wasn't it like you know a more recent version
version, for example, than the Nintendo 64 one. So, yeah, it, it is quite curious. I mean, looking at it, I imagine the graphics are going to be upscaled. It's not going to be running at, like, you know, Nintendo 64 resolution through blur vision Yeah, that'd be quite funny if that was the case. I'd be really <laughs> lazy. <laughs> yeah, instead of a CRT filter, a blur filter. <laughs> <laughs> we'll soon find out. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be out, you know, today when the show comes out. So um, I'll be giving it a download and play this weekend. I'll give you my thoughts next week. Now, something else that I know you've been quite hyped for, a retro shooter, Rise of the Triad. We've talked about this before on the show. This is now getting a remaster as well. Yeah, so Rise of the Triad was a really interesting title. Um, it was basically the follow-up of Wolfenstein 3D, but id Software didn't actually do it. They gave it out to 3D Realms. So 3D Realms developed Rise of the Triad separately. So it is a 3D Realms title. And the really cool thing about that was, I don't know if you've ever played it, it's uh, another Nazi killing game, but it's right. like got multi-layers on it. It's got a lot more kind of development than the original Wolfenstein. Um, I'd say it's getting more closer to kind of Doom um, with with new textures and stuff like that. Well, that game's actually getting remade by a, a group called Destructive Creations, and they're going to release it on the PS4, Um PS5 to be confirmed, Switch, PC, and Xbox One. And I think this is going to be really cool for any of those kind of PC first-person shooter fans, but also people that want to get on these older first-person shooters on the Switch. Uh, They've got a little trailer of it playing on the Switch at the moment, and it it does look really smooth and uh, really good fun. I was going to say Rise of the Triad for me was always kind of like one of those games which I always just thought, oh, yeah, it's a Doom clone kind of thing. But it, it kind of comes in with, there's that one, um, Exhumed, and another one called Blood, which are like ones I've always kind of wanted to play. Yeah. So I'm glad that it's kind of coming out, because I never played them when I was younger. I think they were based on different engines. So they yeah. were on the Ken Silverman build engine, and then okay. this one was on uh, id Software's uh, Wolfenstein one. But yeah. they had that yeah. similar look, because they used yeah. the same textures and stuff. But if I'm right, if I'm remembering rightly is rise of the triad it's, it's like wolfenstein but it's like even more over the top like the nazis have like even oh more, yeah like you know they're in they're in like big long suits and stuff yeah, but also yeah. like they've revealed that this remastered version is going to have multiplayer okay m- mouse look support which was really important actually with these older games because you know that they'd, they'd have this fake fake 3d before so mouse <laughs> look supports uh, a really big thing a uh, widescreen resolution as well and a classic mode so you can go back to the older mode as well and oh, play nice. that way sounds awesome i like it when they do that in games but then often you, you know you look at it and you, you play an old mode for like two or three seconds and be like yeah back to the new one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through those rose tinted spectacles and actually it's not the only thing getting a remaster as well uh, obviously doom 64 now that was quite an interesting version of doom um that came out on the nintendo 64 but it was totally unlike any other version wasn't it this was like a, a custom game really it felt you know i really enjoyed that game i thought it was a lot darker than the, um, the, um, the version. I, I was actually thinking as you were saying it, you're like, oh, it's like its own version. I was like, yeah, it's the dark version. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I had to turn the brightness on your monitor all the way up yeah. to see what's going on. Uh, well, apparently it's going to be getting a physical release for the PS4 and the Switch. Yeah, this looks really interesting. I think straight away to point out, so obviously it came out with Doom Eternal. As like, yeah. a, if you got like the special edition of Doom Eternal, you got it as like a DLC, didn't you? Yeah. But now it's coming out as a physical copy but what i think is really interesting about this is it comes with an n64 cartridge which isn't playable sadly but it comes with an n64 cartridge and it comes in an n64 box 
no, which no, I think it's... is really awesome. <laughs> no, it's it's cool actually because we did cover these limited run uh, games before. Yeah, uh, the, the, and we covered the Turrican one, which was blooming expensive. But this is fifty four uh, ninety nine dollars, which for what you're getting is pretty cool. You know, you're getting Much the more book, the case, uh, all of this kind of stuff, a poster as well. I do love the fact that price is a lot more reasonable. Do you think they were listening to last week's show? They could have. <laughs> <laughs> right, Joe's not going to slag this one off or price it no, reasonably. Maybe they think they'll sell more. So like Turrican was smaller, so higher prices. Yeah, yeah true, because it doesn't say how many of these they're doing. It just says it's coming out, whereas Turrican was like 3,000, wasn't it? So so what's what's your betting that someone's going to get that commemorative car and then shove a, an actual PCB in there and have oh, like God, 64? <laughs> 100%. They'll be like, yeah, we've got Doom running on the Doom 64, you know, fake cartridge. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be on day one, guaranteed. So if you're doing a pre-order that, I'll put a link to it and uh, all the other stories that we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Speaking of new releases, maybe of a game that um, I'm almost certain you probably never played. We talked about Polybius on the show before and I think one of my favourite YouTube videos in the last few years do you know that AVGN video he oh, did about Polybius yeah <laughs> that, was that like a Halloween episode or something he, he did he, it was it was the week running up to Halloween and he did like five minutes a day and as he kind of spoke about it he, he started out just talking about like the history and the uh, the whole kind of like urban legend of Polybius and stuff like that and then like it kind of turned into like a uh, a story, didn't it? Like an actual kind of like he, he found it like lost footage, and like then a it documentary kind of like almost wasn't his it? Mind. And it actually took me like two days of watching it to realize what was going on. Do you know what I mean? Like to realize, oh, okay, it's a story kind of thing. Well, Polybius, obviously, it's one of the probably the biggest urban legend in the world of video games. I mean, I'm sure pretty much everyone knows it but it was meant to be this arcade cabinet that appeared mysteriously in a couple of arcades back in the early 80s Mm. and you know there's been all these like stories about how it was actually a plant there by the u.s government to uh, there's even been reports that apparently it was to recruit potential soldiers and other stories saying it caused seizures and brain aneurysms in teenagers who were playing it some people thought the cia were using it to brainwash people and then uh, all the cabinets disappeared and that was a rumor that was you know pretty much been around since i've been on the internet and there've been i mean jeff minter obviously did a game called polybius kind of based on the legend there's actually one of my favorite games on the psvr but now this is numbskull designs who've been doing these really cool mini arcade cabinets i've got the you know the miss pac-man and the pac-man one they did the gallagher one recently as well and these are really nice cabinets that they do but now they're going to be bringing their own version of polybius to their quarter arcade range so that means if you've <laughs> wanted to own your own little mini polybius cabinet you can finally do it but what game does it have on it then? Is it an actual <laughs> title or it. actual oh, Polybius yeah. on it? <laughs> yeah, you doesn't just remember it after you played it. it. <laughs> <laughs> it just, um, disappears after one go. <laughs> <laughs> you just buy it and you go to play it, and some like Men in Black just come and take it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Play the game again, boys. <laughs> well, well, this is running on uh, Kickstarter at the moment. I mean, they're already at the time recording this is uh, nine days to go, and they're nearly at forty thousand out of the £50,000 goal. So, you know, they're definitely going to get there. This yeah. looks quite nice, actually. I think there's one feature that looks really cool. On the back, it's got a huge USB hub. <laughs> you know how useful <laughs> that can be? You can open the back of the little cart and just shove all your USB devices in there. and yeah, have like them 10 all, of them. Yeah, charging off the Polybius unit. That's quite smart. 
Imagine that your friend comes over. Can I charge my phone? Oh, yeah, just plug it into the back of my Polybius <laughs> cabinet. I mean, it's. I'm just looking now, so nine days left on it. I mean, it's only £79 for the early yeah. bird, which is pretty cool, or it's £99 once it's over. But I can't find anywhere what actual game is going to be on it. Yeah, I mean, looking at the looking at it, I mean, they're saying that they're going to kind of do their what what they imagine Polybius oh, okay. would okay. have been like. I imagine so it's going to be something I'm guessing they're making for this. It's not going to be obviously the original game. I wouldn't imagine, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm but guessing the hardware in there is going to be something that you could just probably chuck ROMs on or or, or some kind of one of these arcade. Well, the other the no other ones. Ports. I mean, I, I've got the Pac Man and the Miss Pac Man one. They're kind of locked down, so you know you can't actually put your own stuff on there. They're just dedicated to that one game. But I, you know, it's commodity hardware that's in there. So I mean, you know, you could probably find a way. But um, I just think it's more, it's it's a talking point in your retro collection, isn't it? Having a even mm, even yeah. a mini Polybius cabinet. Yeah, so. it it does look nice, and it's it's an oddity, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to back that on Kickstarter, it's live now. And you've still got a week left. Um, and like I said, these cabinets they've made, I mean, they're, they're all really good quality as well. Now, before we get into our chat this week with uh, Brian Baglow, uh, you're quite excited about this as well, Joe. Scott Pilgrim. Now, that was a game based on the movie that wasn't around for very long. Yeah, so this is a... Um, so Scott Pilgrim vs. The World was a graphic novel, which then got made into a film. And at the same time, the game came out which was based on the novel, but it came out when the film came out, if that makes sense. Yeah. And essentially, it was only on, I don't know how long it was on, like PSN and Xbox Live for, but it was an Xbox Live arcade game. And it was only on there, I want to say for like a year in 2010. So it's quite new for us for the Retro Hour, about as new as we've probably ever gone. But <laughs> I loved the game. It's an 8-bit style beat-em-up, and it has yeah. an absolute fantastic, like the graphics on it are amazing. The soundtrack is absolutely beautiful. It's a hard as nails couch play game. So it's like it's four player co-op and it just, I don't know the story behind it, but I want to say it was, there was something with the licensing on the music and it got taken down after like a year or two. And it was one of those games that used to appear on eBay, like, you know, an Xbox 360 for sale because it had Scott Pilgrim versus the world on it. So I still have it, which is really cool. So I still have it on my 360 and I play it every now and then, but it is coming out again. Um, it just says this holiday season, so it's coming out in time for Christmas on PS4, Xbox One, Switch. Um, it's also coming out on Stradia and, and Steam and stuff like that. And it's just going to be a new updated version with the original soundtrack, all the original graphics and everything like that. So, And it's going to be four-player local co-op, which is not something you get very often on, on these modern games and stuff. And it's going to be completely four-player online as well. So I'm super excited about this because I, I can't stress enough how much of a good beat up it was. And it does look very retro-inspired. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're a fan of what we normally talk about, I mean, like you said, it's a 2010 game, but it looks like it could have come out in, like, you know, 1992 or something. Yeah, 100%. And, like, you know, the graphics, like... It sounds really weird when I say this, but even though they were retro-style graphics, they were ahead of their time because they look like those hand-drawn, pixel-perfect mm. graphics that we see so much on, like, Switch re-releases these days. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you were seeing it in 2010 and stuff like that. Um, I believe it comes with all the DLC as well, which was just a couple of the characters. Um, and just when you play it, I'm hoping it comes out just at like 10, 15 pounds. So a lot of people do play it and stuff like that. But it's just awesome seeing all the just the little Easter eggs in the background. You know, some are really, really obvious. Like the world map is just Super Mario, Super Mario World 3. Like literally <laughs> just a complete rip off of it. Um, but you even see little things like Polybius arcades in the background and stuff like all right. that. <laughs> so just a really really cool retro game which i'm just excited to see is actually going to be 
finally coming back after like 10 years. You know what really bugs me about digital gaming? It is that, you know, the fact that you can buy something then if it gets removed from the store, there's no way to get it again. I mean, unless it's on like, you know, your hard disk or, mm. I mean, sometimes you can re-download it, but there, are, there have been occasions when even they get deleted. And I've got the um, the Outrun Online arcade yeah. on my Xbox 360 and like my friend sold his 360 and then wanted to get another one, but he couldn't download it again for some reason. Yeah. It obviously got deleted, I think, because the license ran out. But that's one thing, at least when you've got a physical copy of a game, it's never going to get removed and you've always got it. I think that's definitely the downside to digital gaming. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, um, at the moment, I, I mod we use and um, Brain Training is the game that we use. But as soon as the Wii U store's gone, um, there's going to be no opportunity to mod them anymore yeah. because that digital copy gets taken down and then that's it so joe if you want to get your xbox 360 with that on uh, ebay for like 300 quid right then we're going to chat to brian baglow in just a minute before we do let's just take a moment to give a huge thank you to this week's supporter and you know on this show we only pick sponsors that we really believe in and products that we really like as well and you guys know that i'm a total coffee fiend complete coffee fiend man like every time i'm like done tea no coffee (laughs) (laughs) i'm not even joking if i have eight cups of coffee in a day that's normally a quiet day for me Uh, but this week we're brought to you by our incredible friends at packed coffee now packed coffee they do freshly roasted specialty coffee and they don't sacrifice quality for the sake of profit and it's ground just moments before it's shipped and also it's direct trade as well because i was reading this it's it's quite interesting actually quite sad that most farmers actually lose money with each sale at commodity prices with you know the coffee that you buy in the supermarket Mm. but they actually buy direct from the farmer meaning they earn 25 to 125 percent above fair trade rates so they actually make a profit because a lot of coffee comes from places like ethiopia rwanda El Salvador, Brazil, and it's like in Kenya, and it's good to be supporting these guys. And there's also massive variety as well. They've got over 15 different roasting coffees any time that you can choose from. And it's really flexible as well. I mean, they deliver it to your door, but you can choose how you want it and when it's delivered. So, you know, most subscriptions, you either get it like on the first of every month or like every Wednesday. With this, you can pick, you know, get your coffee whenever you want it, essentially. So if, like me, you're plowing through a lot of coffee a week, you can have multiple deliveries. And, of course, you can pause or cancel or change your plan at any time. And... They actually deliver it fast and free. If you order it before 1pm, Monday or Friday, it'll be with you the next day. And it's letterbox friendly as well. So that means you don't have to wait around for it at home. It comes through the door and it's there when you get in. Now, one thing I love about it as well is, you know, like I said, I do love coffee. But also there's just something about having a quality coffee. You know when you open the bag and you just get that smell and you can tell that it's going to be delicious? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, I I just love going into coffee shops. Even though I'm a tea drinker, I just sit there and kind of... Ooh, have that atmosphere and that nice, nice, fresh roasted coffee smell. So you can take it from me. As a coffee connoisseur, honestly, it's one of the nicest cups of coffee I've ever tasted. And we want you to give it a try for yourself. So we've got a discount code that I've managed to get for you to get your first bag for just £1.95. So all you have to do, and obviously we get these deals so you can take advantage of them and you'll be helping out the podcast. You know, well, we this keeps us going, this kind of thing. So please do support our sponsors. All you have to do is go to packedcoffee.com. That's P-A-C-T coffee.com and then create your own flexible coffee plan enter the code retro at checkout and you'll get a specialty coffee box through your door for just £1.95 so have a look right now thanks to our very good friends at Pat Coffee and also we've got a patron running at the moment as well that we've been using to uh, I mean I've been over your house about what three times this week <laughs> so yeah, your new yeah. Gear. We're socially ready to distancing go with it of course 
Of course, of course. Uh, we're almost ready to go with the new stuff. Joe is going to be uh, building a desk this weekend. I know you're yeah, really yeah. excited I've got about a desk in the post. In the post. <laughs> I love that. I've got a desk through, yeah. the, desk through the letterbox. We'll have to live stream that. Joe's <laughs> attempt at building a desk. Oh, God, please don't. I get so frustrated <laughs> with these flat pack furnitures. But yes, I have got my first piece of equipment, which is a desk. <laughs> but I will say, your missus is actually a bit of a whiz at doing the flat pack furniture stuff. Because I know when we moved house, uh, my wife got your missus over to do all the IKEA stuff. She, 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 she enjoys it. She usually <laughs> kicks me out of the room when we try to do it together <laughs> for her to just do it. And I'll come in and I'll just be like, oh, she's built a wardrobe. Bearing in mind, my miss is like a tiny little five foot three. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she just goes for it with like a hammer and chisel or something. So, yeah. It's <laughs> if you've be... got a chisel, then you're <laughs> not doing it right. <laughs> Chiseling some Ikea This, this is how experienced I am. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, maybe I've leave got, it to her this weekend. I've got, I'm, I'm going I'm to be trying to do it with the desk this weekend. So hopefully I don't break it. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get a second one on order. Uh, but listen, guys, it's thanks to you that, you know, we're investing in new equipment, getting our home studio set up so that the show's more comfortable for us to do and sounds better as well. So we really appreciate your support. And, of course, we've got another Patrons Hangout coming up as well, which we're going to be doing next Sunday evening, 27th of September at 8pm. If you want to join us for that, I'll, of course, put a link to that in the uh, Patron page. It's always a bit of a laugh as well, isn't it? Just hanging out with the lads and geeking out about technology and anything else that comes to mind. And you can join us for that. We've got a few other perks as well. But really, the main thing is you're keeping the podcast going week in, week out. And of course, for making a donation into our Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to Steve Arnott. Alex Solman. Charlie Preston. Nat Robbins. And Weeju Wu who all made donations into our Patreon. And if you'd like to do the same, you can find that right now at theretrohour.com. Right, let's get some inside stories about DMA Designs, Rockstar, those original incredible GTA games. Our special guest is Brian Baglow, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today we're going to be talking about a few legendary companies, and they're also one of the most infamous video games franchises of all time. DMA Design, Rockstar, Grand Theft Auto, much more as well with our special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Brian Baglow. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Great to have you joining us. Now, before we get into you know your tales of the time you spent working on those games and at those companies, and also what you're doing these days, because I know you're doing some really important work in Scotland right now. I mean, it's always nice to kind of get a bit of a background in our guests and kind of find out your geek credentials. So what was kind of your earliest gaming experience then? What introduced you to this crazy world of video games? Oh, uh, ZX81. Um, I somehow persuaded my parents that it was the future. Honestly, if you don't buy me this, I'm going to end up, you know, dying alone in a bus shelter covered in <laughs> poo and being arrested by the police because technology, mum, honestly, it's the thing. Uh, so they bought me a ZX81 plus a 16K RAM pack and uh, I spent weeks and weeks trying to get anything to load on the bloody thing um, until I got a new tape recorder and it turned out that the actual output cable, you know, the output jack wasn't working. So I think my first game was um, a, a very, very early prototype text adventure called Phoenix. Um, yeah, and that was about it. And then I discovered that those games all sucked. So I persuaded mum and dad to buy an Atari VCS instead. And <laughs> that was me away. Pitfall all the way. That was my Tomb Raider. 
Although, I mean, obviously we had 3D Monster Maze on the ZX81. That that was a scary game when it was uh, around originally. Oh, yeah. It's unfortunately, I think mine got so hot when I tried to load that, it melted through my desk and is probably still on its way to the Earth's core. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the gaming scene like growing up in Scotland? The gaming scene was, was pretty much like the, I guess, the, the, the rest of the UK. Um, the home computer revolution hit, and that was really the first thing that uh, many of us knew about it. Um, I was lucky. I grew up in Fife, uh, as you can tell from the charming accent, which was a, an old seaside resort, or Leaven, the, the town I grew up in, was an old seaside resort. So they had a couple of arcades there, and um, so they started off with the Space Invaders and the Asteroids and the Centipedes and the like. So I guess my first experience of, of kind of commercially produced games that the rest of the world was playing came from there. And uh, I remember distinctly asking to go there and my mum's look of horror and disgust that uh, you know she would have to go in with my little brother in the pram and stand there while I thrashed about in Spy Hunter or or, you know uh, I remember being terrified when Gorf uh, spoke to me for the first time because I wasn't expecting that Um, and then as I say the ZX81 the the Atari 2600 um, I was a big 2600 fan and uh, that really opened the doors to the gifting phenomenon you know I could then go and bug my grandparents and the rest of my family for um, games when it came to birthdays and Christmas times. So, you know, from the original combat, which I had to eke out over six months, um, I really got into uh, Bombjack and then, as I say, Pitfall. I, I did eventually finish Pitfall, all 20 minutes of it, but I think it took me close on a year and a half. Was there much of a kind of copying or piracy scene? Yeah, you know, when I was at high school, I, I had the ZX81. Um, a lot of the cooler kids had the Spectrum when that came out. And um, yeah, you know, it, it's let's be honest, it's if you're, if you're blowing an entire month's um, pocket money on a game, um, and it was John Menzies in the high street in Dunfermline, where you could go in at lunchtime and pour over all of the cassette tape boxes and figure out what it was you were going to buy when you had enough money. Uh, so... Yes, copying was rife, um, to be absolutely honest with you. And then moving on a few years when we got into the, uh, you know, the Amiga and the ST years, um, the, the whole demo scene and the copying on disc-based media uh, was really kind of what pushed gaming you know, quite so far and quite so fast because you found a game that you liked, you let your friends know about it and you would, okay, yeah, I can, I can, I can lend you a copy, wink, wink. Um, so yeah, it, it it did happen. I I, I won't deny it. If uh, you know the the police want to come round for copyright infringement, um, you know, just stick my postcode and address in at the end of this podcast. <laughs> and, uh, I'll cheerfully confess to killing the games industry. I do think though, it's one thing that it did keep alive back then. The demo scene was definitely uh, jiffy bags. I think they kept that industry afloat for a good few years. Oh, absolutely, and and the whole uh, the market scene. You know, up in Glasgow, we had uh, Paddy's Market and we had uh, Kinross Market, which, you know, they were indoor at the weekends. And uh, you would have the trestle tables and the guys with the, the big boxes of games. But if you just went up and did the secret hand sign and gave them a wink, it's like, you know, you could have a look in the back of the car or the back of the van. And that's where all the all the plain blue discs with the handwritten labels lived. Um, so, you know, it, it, it did a lot for the... Uh, the emerging games market, I think, because there were more and more people out there who were getting access to games that they would never otherwise have been able to do. 
Yeah, and I imagine it sold a lot of hardware as well. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. You know, it's uh, arguably the the whole of the, the Scottish gaming scene came out of the fact that the Timex factory in Dundee was the primary manufacturing plant for the ZX Spectrum. So, you know, it's a proud legacy and all that. And uh, there has been through you know numerous discussions with some of the uh, the guys who were around and about at that point. Um, yeah, there, there were there were a few QA issues with um, units which fell off the back of an assembly line and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it, it's we're not saying that the entire sector is founded on piracy and theft, but yeah, what the hell? Well, you went to university to study software engineering. What made you want to consider computing as a career path then? That's a really good question. Um, so I, this is a true story, right? When I was at high school, um, I was in the first year that actually got to, to study computers, right? It wasn't computer science, it was just computers. Um, and we went into this room that was surrounded by desks and each desk had a ZX81 and the woodworking teacher had thoughtfully made frames and uh, the frames had been put on the desk and the computer had been put inside and they'd been screwed down so that people couldn't steal them. And the teacher, who I believe was a French teacher, because I don't think computing teachers existed at the time, couldn't get the computers to work. And uh, he was like, okay, has anyone got one of these bloody things? And I put my hand up nervously and he said, OK, can you come and tell me why these aren't working? And uh, the, the woodworking teacher had neglected to leave a space for the power cable. So <laughs> none of them were plugged in, you know, <laughs> which I think tells you an awful lot about the very early days. But but that kind of sparked my interest. Um, and uh, from school, I actually joined um, a big technology company, a company called Marconi, um, who were a major employer back in Fife in those days. And it was all military and it was all Department of De- or MOD, Ministry of Defence and so on and so forth. And they did everything from, you know, torpedoes through to nuclear power station control room simulators and educational software for navies and stuff. Um, and so I applied and I got a job there um, through the YTS scheme because I am that old, child of the 80s, you know, you can say lots of things about Mrs. Thatcher, but she got me my first job, which paid £25.70 per week. Well, you um, were also programming at Marconi, weren't you? So I, I was. There was I stuff was. like COBOL was around and oh, yeah, all, all these and different languages. Yeah, yeah, COBOL and Pascal were the, were the big, big things. I, I loved Pascal. I actually um, I, I used it to program a turtle so I could draw uh, Sierpinski gaskets uh, because fractals were, had just been discovered and they were quite a big thing. Um, you know, so I, I was playing with it, but uh, Marconi sent me to, to college and then university one day a week to go and learn uh, computing and then computer science um, or computer engineering, I do beg your pardon. And, uh, but it was all, the way it was taught, it was all about controlling machines. It was CNC, it was lathes and drills and flexible manufacturing systems and all of this kind of thing. And when I suggested to one of my lecturers that I wanted to do a project on um computer games, uh, he told me he'd fail me on the spot, you know, so it wow. wasn't necessarily, and this is despite the fact that the company was doing some fairly major chunky simulators, you know, they did the simulator for the Challenger 2, ch- excuse me, Challenger 2 tank and things like that, but games were not to be contemplated, that was a frivolous waste of time. Again, you would die lonely and alone in a bus shelter in the pouring rain, you know, surrounded by the cast of EastEnders if you ever went and did uh, the games, <laughs> it would just be awful. Uh, so games were never really on the agenda. My, my 
passion for games at home was not reflected either at work or in my academic career. And that's putting that very, very, <laughs> very kindly. Well, obviously, you did go to work at the legendary DMA Design. How did you get your job there? And were you aware of the company's history? Um, I was. I was. It was it, Strangely enough, it was my mum my um, showed me a, a job advert in the local paper, The Courier, and it was DMA Design looking for programmers. And I was at Marconi at the time. I had uh, done my ONC and HNC. I was doing my HND. And she went, you quite like this games thing. Look, did you know these guys existed? And it, I looked and went, oh, OK. And it was only when I mentioned it to somebody else uh, at uh, Marconi, they went, oh, the guys who did Lemmings? And I was like, what? Lemmings? Because I was part of a computer club uh, at Marconi. So every month we would all chip in a fiver or whatever. And uh, we took it in turns to buy a game at the end of the month. And we would all get together at lunchtimes and play the games. And so Lemmings had been a huge, you know, a smash hit for us. And I didn't realise it was the same company. So I immediately applied and uh, applied as a programmer and I got an interview and I went up to Dundee, you know, in my shiny suit and my, you know, turned up sleeves because, again, it was the 80s and I was Don Johnson. Um, and I got turned down flat, totally flat. because, And I can pinpoint it to the, the, the exact second. It was where Adam, who was the, the head of the tools department, said, so what do... How much 3D programming have you done? And I said, none. And he went, anyway, it's been lovely. <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the job. Um, but in the meantime, one of my friends at Marconi, Grant Middleton, who joined the, the audio team at uh, DMA, was sending me emails going, it's so good here. Like, this is what we get to do. And this is my job. Can you believe this is my job? And it, I just hated him. I hated him so much. I, I just wanted to go and set fire to his car. Um, I didn't. But so what happened was about, I think it was six or eight months later, the company was advertising again. They were looking for programmers. And I decided not to apply as a programmer. I sent them a CV, which was about half an inch, three quarters of an inch thick. And it was the most outrageous tissue of lies ever. But obviously so, you know. I claimed that I had uh, discovered the Northeast Passage, um, that I had, you know, performed all of the base parts on everything that Muddy Waters had ever recorded, that I had <laughs> written the X-Files. I had discovered three of the noble gases. Um, I just made stuff up, um, but outrageously so. And I, I attached, a, as I recall, a pack of Return of the Jedi transfers um, marked as a bribe, and just really kind of went over the top. And I sent this whole package into them. And I got, it, I got asked to go for an interview. And so I arrived not really knowing quite what the hell uh, to expect. Um, so I went up to their offices in Dundee. It was Dave Jones, uh, you know, who founded the studio. And uh, Stuart Graham, who was the head of the... It's not the R&D department. It was the... Anyway, design department. Um, who interviewed me and they asked me a whole bunch of questions about what I had played and why I liked it and why games worked and what didn't work about games. And uh, I, I answered as best I could. And I, I got offered the position of writer. So I joined the, the design team as a writer. And the first thing they gave me to do was this obscure little top-down game where you played a cop zooming around the city trying to, you know, arrest and clean up the town, arrest the bad guys. And... Um, 
and uh, I was in. And it was it was quite good fun, really. Yeah, so obviously we're going to get on to, you know, the Scottish gaming scene very soon and um, into Grand Theft Auto. But you did mention Lemmings there, and obviously I know today there's a, a Lemmings statue in Dundee. I mean, did do you think that Lemmings really put the Scottish gaming scene on the map when that game came out? Oh, it absolutely did. There's, there's no question about it. It was one of the first sort of international breakout hits. Um, you know, it was one of those games that, that, that came out and did really well and then got ported and did really well and then the porting just kept going and going. I think at my last count, when I was still at DNA Design, it was, had reached around about 22 or 23 platforms. Um, and that's got that's expanded since then because Sony now have the IP and they've brought it to mobile and tablet and the like. Um, but, you know, I, I still think it, it holds some kind of record for the, the sheer number of ports because it was going to absolutely everything. You know, the, the Sam Coupe, the FM Towns, it's like the C64, the VIC-20, Everything was getting a port of Lemmings. Um, I think they even had a, a request at one point to take it to the uh, Game & Watch, but I think that was wow. a little step too far. I'm not entirely sure how that would have worked. But yeah, well, They got it running on the Commodore 64, I remember. That was pretty decent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, it's that's the thing. It, it's so simplistic. It's so stripped back, but so satisfying and so much fun that it worked on pretty much every device that you could, that you could throw it at. And I think that's, that's really what established DMA because um, they had done a few original titles, um, Menace and Blood Money, and they had done quite a lot of porting work for Psygnosis on Shadow of the Beast and so on and so forth. But Lemmings was the one that really kind of gave them that reputation. It gave them that uh, recognition on a global stage where they could start to go out and start building their own original IP again and start um, pitching their own ideas to to companies around the world. Um, I think it was Howard Lincoln um, from Nintendo of America who referred to Dave Jones as the Steven Spielberg of the games industry, um, which, you know, within the company itself, it quickly became the Steven Seagal of the games industry because of his <laughs> kick-ass, no-nonsense approach. That's not actually true, but but we, we did... We did uh, quite enjoy the, the description, but Lemmings arguably did more than anything else to really establish Scotland's reckoning, reputation on the global stage. Well, it was really interesting that you actually mentioned there that um, they were asking about 3D stuff because at the time there was a huge pressure for all of these kind of old Amiga companies or, or kind of 16-bit companies to go 3D and to enter this new kind of 32-bit era did you kind of feel there was an air of that pressure around the MA designs? There, well, there, yes, there absolutely was, because you're right. Um, the one thing that's constant in the games industry is change and the onward um, evolution of technology and the fact that we went from 8 to 16 to 32 to 64, yada, 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 the whole progression of the console era um, really did pressure companies into looking at the cutting edge. And uh, DMA came in for that a fair old bit. You know, when I joined, they were working on Grand Theft Auto, Body Harvest, Silicon Valley, Tanktics, um, and I think that was it. And the only one that wasn't true 3D, and you can't see my ironically wiggling bunny ears, to put that in quotes, uh, was Grand Theft Auto. You know, um, Tanktics was 3D, Body Harvest, Silicon Valley were all 3D. and But there was immense pressure to to, you know, be on that cutting edge, um, you know, and so yes, it's they, they were getting asked, and you know, all the way through the development of GTA, it was 
is this going to cut it alongside, you know, all of these cool games that have come out? I remember being part of the team the day that uh, Tomb Raider was released and a few of us went out at lunchtime, picked up copies, went back to the office, installed it and then just sat there going, oh my God, this is gorgeous. We're dead. Um, because how are we going to compete with that? You know, these huge, expansive environments, and these huge, impressive spaces. I mean, the level design, the movement, everything was uh, wonderful and it was terrifying. And, uh, you know, it, it really did bring home to us the, the difference between the approach to uh, the way that Core Design had done um, Tomb Raider and the way that we were approaching GTA. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a constant kind of underlying pressure just to keep pushing things, keep, you know, making things better, keep making things more advanced. Not because it would necessarily improve the game, but because... You know, you could you could use that as a marketing tag, and you could get it onto a different machine. And because they use that um, kind of pseudo three D above view engine that was uh, from Clockwork Knight as well, Indeed. it it still you're right, it still did feel a bit kind of like dated at the time. The graphics, and uh, I think you know all these extra stuff like the storylines, designing level and the art and the interactivity added to it. But but you guys must have been scared initially. I remember seeing it on the news and thinking, oh, an Amiga title was coming out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, again, the, the game had, was in production when I joined, but it was still Race and Chase and it was still you played the role of the cop and you were trying to clean up the town. Um, but everything that was going on in the background and the fact that it was a living, breathing city. Um, there was a huge amount of processing time that, that was taken up in that. Um, and let's be absolutely honest, even if we had gone, you know, polygonal and we had turned it into, you know, a, a, a polygon version of the game, you still wouldn't have been able to run it on anything bar, you know, the most advanced uh, systems at the time. Um, and that wasn't really where we were going. You know, we wanted everyone to be able to play it. So, the, the base level of the game had to work across the PC, the PlayStation, the Sega Saturn, and so on and so forth. So, you know, you couldn't start creating different games for different platforms. Otherwise, you might as well have stopped, drawn a line under it, and, and started again with a completely different technology. Um, you know, and, and this was one of the issues, again, ongoing throughout, was the fact that uh, this is starting to look a little bit dated, uh, which is why quite far through the development process we kind of stopped and and ripped out the cars and put in 24-bit versions of the cars which caused another few months of delay um but it was just to try and make it look as good as we could while keeping all of the underlying i can't i can't even come close calling it ai all of the stuff that kept the city happening around you um so you know it it, it did cause a few problems well, I'm quite interested to find out a bit more about kind of the earliest days of Grand Theft Auto when, I mean, you mentioned it was Race and Chase initially. Were there any kind of other concepts that kind of fell by the wayside as development went on? Um, well, I joined when the game was, was already in development, so I wasn't there for the very early days. But um, as you know, Mike created the engine and I think the, the design team at DMA had kind of, uh, under Dave's general, you know, benevolent guidance, decided that, you know, you could drive around a city with this kind of thing. Um it's not that Dave's solution to everything was throw expensive cars at it, but it totally was. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea of playing the cop, clean up the city, it's a classic story. Why would it not work? 
And it was just really when it got to the, the initial play test and uh, you were zooming around the city. But if you're a cop, even if you know you're the bad guy who gets the book thrown at him all the time, you can't skid through a park knocking, you know, pensioners and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, baby walkers and everything out of the way without getting some sort of penalty. So if you drove for fun, you would end up getting penalised. And, it, and it, there was a constant battle with that as well because all of a sudden you, you, you were ended up driving like a driving instructor if you wanted to get, you know, progress through the game. And that really conflicted with the sort of the all-out um, city reacting around you. Um, and I guess it was, a, it was a narrative problem and it was kind of a narrative solution that uh, was come up with to, to address that. But uh, way back in the, in the sort of the beginning, it, it really was focused on the, the classic goodies and baddies, you know, cops and robbers type of thing. And once you've been immersed in that for a while, it's really hard to take that step back, which I think is why it took quite so long. You know, we're talking maybe a year or so, maybe a year or more into development before the decision was taken to actually swap it round and try playing as the as the bad guy instead. And and that really did make all the difference. So GTA these days is really important, the storyline, but I guess back then it was a really loose kind of concept. How did you go around making a storyline and designing levels with exciting missions? Well, now there there you come to the most fun part of my job at DMA Design. So I was taken on, I was introduced to the team. This is Brian, he's your writer. Um, this is Paul, this is Steve, this is Billy. These are level designers. It's like, this is the rest of the team. Hi guys, hi guys, hi Brian. Um, and so the, the way it worked was I, I had to sit down with, you know, various team members and try and get my head around this game because this is way, way, way before the term sandbox was ever, you know, thought of. And uh, so, okay, so you can go anywhere. Yeah. And you can pick up missions in any order. Yeah. Or not. And just zoom around and have fun. Yeah. Okay. And you guys have written missions already. Yeah. Okay. What is it that you want me to do? Well, you need to put words in. I'm like, okay, excellent. Um, totally makes sense. So, the way it worked was that uh, Paul and Stephen Billy, the level designers who worked on the game, had built the entire city. They had, you know, from not even ground level, below ground level, water level, street level, all the way up. Every tile had been placed, all the streets, all the buildings, everything. And then within that, they had started to give you things to do. So you would walk over a particular telephone and it would tell you to go to one area of the city, get in a car, drive to this building, drive into the building. You'd come out in a different car, get on a motorbike, um, you know, shoot a guy in the face, then drive here, you know, all of the things that you would do. That existed. And then my job was to sort of go, okay, why are you doing this? So I had to then retrofit some plot to this. Now, adding on to that was the fact that there were no voiceovers, there were no cutscenes, you know, there was nothing that I could do. The only way we had of conveying information was a pager, because that's how old this was, ladies and gentlemen, no mobile phones. You had a pager <laughs> which had 120 characters. So Twitter, pff, I, I was there years ago, mate. 
So I had 120 characters to try and convey what it was you had to do and create characters and create some sort of narrative arc. And that was no that was no easy task because I had to invent characters on the fly that you would never see. I had to give you reasons for doing things that you wouldn't otherwise have done or things that the, the, the level designers had decided that were going to be good fun as part of this se- sequence of activities and then try and string them all together. And then also be aware of the fact, uh, be aware at the same time that you could pick this mission up at any point within that city. And while there was an increased probability that you would pick up missions that were kind of clustered together or the end point for one mission increased the probability that you would pick up a start point of another mission nearby, none of that was guaranteed. So there was an awful lot of um, going back and forward and figuring out exactly who the gang members should be, who the bosses were, who the names should be. A lot of that got thrown out simply because they wouldn't fit in 120 characters. You know, so quite short names tended to be to, to be quite popular. Um, but the way I approached it was rather than try to create an overall flow and an overall story, I went out and stole as much as I could from all of the classic crime movies, all of the capers, all of the sort of the, the escape, you know, the getaway drivers, every crime movie I could steal, every crime book, comic, um, you know, very few of the of the, the games that had been done up to that point. And then I just referenced them throughout and tried to make sure that, that people would kind of realise within the course of doing a single mission that what you're doing is essentially the diamond heist from Reservoir Dogs or, um, you know, you're doing uh, the mission that Mel Gibson did at the final 10 minutes of uh, Point... Not Point Blank. Um, yeah, Point Blank. Um, and all of these kind of things. So it was just trying to create recognisable moments within this madness of a city um, and trying to tie together little recognisable themes that worked in different um, different contexts. So there were repeating uh, characters that you would you would find throughout each city, but uh, you would only recognise them after having done two or three missions. So in Liberty City, for example, it was the mayor's daughter. Um, the mayor's daughter kept coming in for some absolute aggro, the poor girl. You know, so at one point you blew up a limo and the mayor's daughter was in the back. At the other, I think you hijacked an ambulance and the mayor's daughter was in the back and it kind of worked and you know it could be her coming back from the hospital or it could be her going home and then her dad takes her out in the limousine and you know so it it, it really worked in a lot of different ways um but it was a a real introduction to the whole non-linear narrative design side of things and uh, i think we i think we got a fairly strong kind of sense of what the game was about you know in addition to all the mission stuff there were a lot of um, triggers so you drove over a certain tile in the city and you could just trigger a little pager message and and again i just raided popular culture as much as i possibly could so we had a little hat tip to core design and, and tomb raider you know so you drove over one particular tile and you got a message going you were fantastic last night call me lara you know just little things to try and provoke a reaction to make people believe that there was a background to this character that that you know things were happening that 
all of the activities you were undertaking were within the context of this bigger storyline. But it was all by implication. You know, nothing really happened. We just told you about things and, and made you imagine that things were happening, you know, when your back was turned or when you weren't paying attention. And that idea is still kind of used in the GTA series. So you look at something like Vice City, and that's very much kind of based on a film. Also San Andreas and uh, stuff like Liberty City, you know, the actual name of the city and the idea is now used in later games. Um, where, where did the name Liberty City come from? I, I, think the, I think the level designers came up with them, you know, they were each given a... a a particular city, a particular level to create. And I think the idea was that we were, we wanted to pay homage to American culture. You know, none of us had, I don't think anybody had really been to America before, you know, we started working on the game. Um, Or if they had, it had only been for a, you know, a quick holiday. But we were all absolutely influenced by um, the movies. And, but at the same time, we didn't want to get sued. So we couldn't call it New York. Because people would, A, have been telling us that uh, the, the mapping wasn't particularly accurate, and which, given it was based on quite large squares, was going to be true. But also, we had no idea, being a small company in Dundee, if we could get sued by cities. You know, so rather than um, New York, San Francisco and Miami, it was Liberty City, San Andreas and Vice City. Um, and obviously, Vice City was a homage to Miami Vice and... Um, San Francisco, the San Andreas Fault, and uh, New York, Liberty City. So I think it was a, a combination of the the uh, the level designers and the rest of the team all having input and just deciding that we would abstract America out. So it was all recognisably, you know, these locations, but it was differentiated enough so that we might not get sued. And that was kind of the, the I think that, that was the sum total of the research that went into the whole, you know, we should, should probably not use real world names just in case. So let's go for, you know, Liberty City and let's call that car a jugular. Well, there were many memorable things about those early Grand Theft Auto games. I mean, how did stuff like, you know, Garanga and Kill Frenzy and stuff like that get added? And were you aware of how important they would be at the time? Yeah, I, I think a lot of these, again, came down to being creative within the incredibly tight restrictions that we had within the game. So uh, one of the programmers came up with a a little routine that allowed the pedestrians to follow each other. So, you know, they had always walked walked down the sidewalks, turned corners and acted kind of believably. But uh, one of the programmers decided, let's see if we can do a little little algorithm that will make them follow each other. And lo and behold, they did. And it was like, okay, so what can we do? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think it was my idea because I grew up in a small town in Fife called Dunfermline. And at lunchtime, when we went down the high street from high school, uh, very occasionally you would get this line of Hare Krishnas coming, leaping down the street and you would hear the drums and it would be Hare Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. And it was just so unexpected in this kind of post-industrial town in the middle of, well, nowhere, in Scotland, um, and the saffron robes and everything. And I thought, well, you know, that would be quite fun because there's an audio sound associated with that. And if there's a, you know, a, a benefit to running them over, if you actually got a score, then 
it would be quite funny. And this was after we had decided you were going to be the bad guy. And as you ran pedestrians over, um, it was Gary Penn, I believe, who sort of suggested it should be like pinball. So, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40. Um, and so that combined with the fact that we could now have a, a little line of pedestrians meant that we could we could do something fun. So I'm sure I suggested it. I, I am perfectly prepared to be told that I am wrong. It was 27 years ago. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, which really makes me feel old guys please be gentle but um you know that that was that was a, a really just interesting way of using a particular little algorithm so that whenever you heard that little dung 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 you're like oh krishna's and your head would go up and you're like okay where are they where are they where are they um and i you know following the same logic as we used for naming the cities and the cars uh, my reasoning was it was really hard to get sued by an ideology like harry krishna uh, I didn't think they were particularly litigious, so it seemed like a fairly safe bet, and it was a bit of a it was a bit of a an experiment. I mean, let's be honest, everything in the original Grand Theft Auto was a bit of an experiment, but it made us laugh, and that was that was kind of enough. And then, as for the kill frenzies, uh, once Gary had suggested the, the whole pinball scoring thing, um, you know, we really pushed that because it was it was fun, and it kind of fitted in with the whole. Um, fact that the city was was recognizing your activities and then rewarding them you know so all the all the little kill frenzy bonuses where you got the you know the remote control cars and the like it was just could you rack up a huge body count in a very short space of time you know with the with the corollary of really ramping up your wanted level and it was like yeah that sounds like really good fun because when you look at the game you look at the the the, the uh, toys that you've got within this digital playset, um, what you can do with them is is fairly limited. So again, it's all about recontextualizing things, and it's all about making you believe that you're doing something other than you were doing. You know, you could you could do a, a kill frenzy just by, you know, getting out the car and mowing down pedestrians, um, you know, zooming down the the pavement at 100 miles an hour, but having the little additional missions. And having something that really differentiated it and made it stand out and encouraged people to kind of let loose really, I guess, played with people's expectations and, and made them think that there was an awful lot more going on. That this was just some crazy city with all of these huge hidden secrets. Um, and it was really in, in a lot of cases to kind of fill up some gaps in the map or, or give you some relief from the, the mission structure where it was go here, get in that car get in this car, go there, get in this car, drive into this building, you know, and it could be a little repetitive. So it, it really broke things up. And it was all about playing into the whole sort of pinball mentality, but uh, playing pinball with people. Well, the soundtrack was a huge thing. And uh, I even remember the rap now, um, Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> got to make a move if you want to. <laughs> that's that's really bad. But, um, Very well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a really good soundtrack, and I guess that must have taken up, number one, a huge amount of space on the CD. It must have really pleased Sony BMG, being a kind of music company, and it must have kept you guys engaged, because uh, I, I know you actually wrote one of the tunes, the uh, country and western Well, tune. I did. To, to be absolutely accurate, I... If you ever heard me attempting to play a musical instrument, you'd know that's not the case. But I did write the lyrics for both the country and western and the heavy metal track Four Letter Love. 
you know, being the writer that I can t- I can totally do. Um, but the soundtrack is a thing of beauty, and I think the the soundtrack for the original Grand Theft Auto should be enshrined in a museum somewhere as something that that was profoundly game changing. And I use game changing in every sense of the word. So the whole soundtrack was done in house. Right, the whole of Grand Theft Auto, you have to kind of understand, was a bit of a risk. Okay, and while it was BMG Interactive, we the the, the interactive side of the company was not as tied into the music side as you might expect. Um, and Grand Theft Auto was seen as the bit of the a bit of the run to the litter. They did an awful lot of different games um, back in their, their original portfolio. I mean, they had a, a really, really broad variety. It really kind of smacked of a big music company going, we need a games division. Everyone else has got one. We want one. And then going out and signing a whole stack of stuff and then figuring out what to do with all of it from then. But GTA was not in 3D. Um, For the first several years of its development, it wasn't that much fun. Uh, It didn't really hang together. You know, the bits that you would expect to be cool, like driving a car and running around the city and, you know, just manoeuvring through the environment, weren't particularly good. Um... And, it, you know, this isn't just me saying this. I think pretty much the whole team will admit to it. So we didn't have a budget for a soundtrack. We didn't have any licensed music. We didn't have any opportunity to approach BMG artists or Arista or any of their other labels and, and say, we would love to use some of your music. Um, you know, the most we ever got was a goodie box from BMG One Christmas with a whole stack of freebies and goodies and merchandise and CDs and everything in it, which was lovely and appreciated and and we loved them to bits. But there was no way we were getting additional money to go and and make a soundtrack. So everything on the soundtrack was done within DMA Design's audio department. And those guys are geniuses um, and should get way more recognition than they did. Uh, So they actually started off with the the actual... um, sounds, the sound effects within the city. And they went and sat in the Kingsway, which is the big ring road around Dundee, and listened to cars and figured out what it is that you actually hear when you hear a car going past. And they figured out that it was you actually heard the tyres first before you heard the engine. And then, you know, all of this kind of thing. So they actually approached it very logically. And I believe it was Colin Anderson, who was the head of the audio uh, department, who suggested, you know, radio stations. You get in a car, it's a different radio station, different types of car, different radio stations. And that way you've got a variety, but also if you get in different types of car, if you've, you know, you're listening to something that you've heard before, it's because they're listening to the same radio station. And then you can do little um, cuts and interludes and DJs and all of that kind of thing. Genius. Well, speaking of um, other genius things about Grand Theft Auto, uh, the marketing in particular was incredible. How did you go about this? And was it kind of risky to whip up the controversy at the time? So obviously that was after stuff like, you know, Mortal Kombat and uh, Night Trap introduced age ratings. But I remember Grand Theft Auto really taking that to the next level in its marketing. That was not uh, that was not DMA. That was uh, that was all BMG. Um, and and. Uh, they, they had looked at the game, we got the game to the point where it was finally finished, we had kind of wrestled it into a box, onto a gold master, and they were happy. Um, and again, they kind of cut, they cut corners with a lot of the 
a lot of the marketing, you know, they originally did the maps that you got in the game were going to have a lot of adverts around the outside and that kind of thing. So when they said we're going to bring in Max Clifford Associates, um, I think the general reaction around the whole of DMA was who? Um, and But I was thrilled and delighted because over the course of the game, I had kind of fallen into the role of doing the PR um, simply because standing in front of people and being enthusiastic was something that I'm very good at. Um, so I was like, yay, excellent. Okay, hang on, what? And so we had a couple of meetings with Max Clifford. I spoke to him, uh, or I spoke to Sean, who was the, the, the guy handling our particular um, case. And uh, yeah, so we had, a, we had a piece put in the News of the World, and it was classic because it was like, it's... Hello, Kelvin. It's Max. All right, we've got this game. Yeah, video game. Yeah, for kids. Uh-huh. So you steal cars, run over people, and shoot policemen in the face. I know it's disgusting. I'll send you details. And so that's how it worked. You know, all of a sudden we had a whole one-page piece in the News of the World, and they wanted to write about somebody. And uh, I went to Dave Jones and said, "Dave, we've got a piece in the News of the World." And he went, "Okay." I went, "They want to talk to you." He was like, "Absolutely no way." ever over my dead body and I'm like okay um Keith you're the head of the team how about you would you want to no no Ian you're the lead data no 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 so in the end it, it was me because I was the PR guy so there was a picture of me in a BMG interactive sweatshirt scowling at the camera in black and white um and you know they turned a real incident into a Grand Theft Auto-esque um, escape from the police uh, and the real story is that I had once been driving to work, my previous work, and uh, hit a patch of black ice and skidded and my car hit a tree, my one litre mini metro. And they turned this into a high speed pursuit over Knock Hill, you know, because I did drive over Knock the actual hill, not the racing circuit. But they turned it into a high speed pursuit of my um, turbocharged XR3i around Knock Hill. Um, w- with the police chasing me. It's lucky I didn't have drugs in the car, sneered Baglow. <laughs> so my parents were absolutely appalled. My dad wanted to sue, and I'm like, you can't really sue since I had actually did give them the story. They just, you know, may have blurred the lines of truth slightly in the way that way they do. And so that was really the kickoff. And that got so much traction because at that time in the UK, we didn't have you know, the disgust and outrage about Mortal Kombat or Night Trap that they had in the US. This was homegrown. So I still remember it was Lord Campbell of Croy who led the charge into uh, demanding that this sick filth be banned. And after that, it was a pile on. Everybody wanted to decry what we were doing, bringing about the fall of civilization. It's like we're, we're, you know, destroying the morals of an entire generation. It's like society is going to collapse, flames, cats and dogs living together. It was all going to be horrible. And, and we found it tremendously funny because <laughs> that's not where we were going. We didn't set out to create a game that was that was massively controversial. We wanted to create a game that was fun. And at the end of the day, we think we had managed that and, and we had actually uh, been getting an awful lot of feedback from people. And the fact that the game kept selling and selling and selling and selling and then not dropping off a cliff like most of the other games did... Um, so over the course of a year, it just kept going. So we knew that people were enjoying it. It was all down to kind of word of mouth. So the, the marketing from BMG kind of gave it that kickstart, but that's not sustainable. You know, you can't keep outrage going. It was hilarious. It was funny because we knew that there was nothing 
that bad in the game. Everything in there was implied. You know, even the bad language was, was reasonably minimal, apart from Four Letter Love, the heavy metal track, which did, I admit, have all of the four letter words that I knew in it. Um, written about Shirley Manson from Garbage. Um, there's a fact that nobody knows, but it's true. Well, I certainly remember seeing it on the news and all of our mates and then immediately going, where can we get this game? Um, but later on, DMA Designs actually turned into Rockstar Games. And uh, I guess that was before GTA 2. So what was, was that kind of period like? And well, It was a very, very strange period because um, before Grand Theft Auto came, oh, now hang on, let me get my timings right, because DMA Design was bought by Gremlin the developer and publisher based in Sheffield. So they acquired the entire company. But obviously they didn't have the intellectual property for Grand Theft Auto. And uh, so after the first game came out and was a success, I actually moved on. I left the company and joined Rockstar. Uh, So I got to go out to New York and learn the Rockstar way, which was very interesting. Um, There was an awful lot more work and an awful lot less partying than I thought, you know, Rockstars would have put up with. But hey, you live and learn. Um, so during that time, DMA got bought by Gremlin. Gremlin in turn then got bought by Infogram. Infogram, I think, got bought by Atari, and then Atari collapsed. And it, all, it, it got very complicated. Anyway, long story short is that uh, Take-Two eventually bought uh, Grand Theft Auto and, and kind of more or less bought the team. And uh, the team, you know, they, they decided to disband DMA Design and turn it into Rockstar North in Edinburgh. Forgive me if I'm missing some of the nuances and subtleties in this. It's uh, it, Again, it was quite a long time ago. And even then, there were some very interesting things because I moved back from Take-Two, not in New York, but from Windsor, because going from the city that never sleeps to the, uh, the centre of Trumpton was a bit traumatic. But I moved back up to Dundee because Rockstar was going to merge... Rockstar Games and DMA Design and an Israeli technology company called Broadband Studios to create a, a brand new company um, called Pixel Broadband. And they were going to, Grand Theft Auto was going to be the sort of the crown jewels, um, but they were focusing on this technology platform that would allow you to create a game and then publish it to many platforms. So it was, a, it was almost a, a prototype Unity or prototype um, Unreal Engine. Uh, but way, 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 you know, years before that that was going to happen. Um, and the IPO never never came off. The IPO didn't happen. So I was left in the uh, the office in Dundee um, decommissioning what used to be DMA Design. So, you know, all the desks went in one office. It's like the Silicon Graphics kit went in another, another office. And there were about four of us, me and the testers, who were set, you know, le- left sitting at desks looking at each other and downloading ridiculous amounts of music and games through our uh, T1 internet connection. Um, I did go into work at uh, at uh, Rockstar North briefly at the start of um, uh, GTA 3, but obviously, as a, the PR guy I was at that point, they weren't going to need me until the very end of the game. Um, and then they decided that the wall of silence was the best PR approach, so I doubt I would have had much to do anyway. Um, and the new writer didn't want uh, <laughs> didn't want to hear from me, so I was like, "Yeah, screw you guys! I'm going to go and work in mobile games. That's the coming thing." 
Well, you like to work at Denki Limited, and obviously there's a lot of ex-DMA staffers there as well. I mean, do you generally kind of cross paths with these guys, you know, throughout the years in other companies? Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's, there's a huge amount of crossover, and an awful lot of the people who worked at DMA and worked on Grand Theft Auto in particular have gone on to do some really interesting things and are still involved in the games industry in so many different ways, shapes and forms, not just across Scotland and the UK, but, out, you know, worldwide, really. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's I still run into all of the people based in Scotland on a fairly regular basis. I run the Scottish Games Network, which is the, the industry body for Scotland's video game sector. And so I talk to an awful lot of the studio heads out there. Um, and many of them are ex-DMA design people. And then out across the world, the kind of the alumni are out there and they're working for an awful lot of the, the biggest companies, Not again, not just in video games, but out into the wider tech, interactive, virtual and augmented reality companies. You name it. You know, there's a a big diaspora. Uh, but, you know, let's see, two years, two years, it'll be 25 years. I think it's time for a reunion. I think we should find a sponsor to bring us all together and we can all pontificate together like, you know, old men. You also ran DigiFYI as well. That's a really interesting kind of website that covers Scottish tech news. Why do you think there was a like lack in Scottish tech news and information about the Scottish gaming scene? Well, I think it's there's an awful lot of really good work that's being done up here. There are some incredibly technically talented people, some very creative and driven people. We've got a lot of really good founders and entrepreneurs and very good ideas. But we suffer from a problem of being a little bit, well, Scottish, which means that we don't always want to stand up, stick our heads above the parapet and shout about what we're doing. So the reason I set up the Scottish Games Network, the reason I joined Digit, um, was particularly to try and highlight some of the amazing work that's being done up here because, um, you know, we, we, we do have this tendency to hide our light under a bushel or, you know, downplay it to the point where, you know, you can be talking about the, the next huge big billion dollar tech unicorn and the people that you're talking to in the pub just go, oh, yeah, uh, Brian does, I, I don't know what he did. He said something that was digital, digital, you know. And, and you have no idea what the heck is going on. So I, I joined the team at Digit um, as a staff writer, then as the editor, really to kind of kickstart the whole digital tech um, news channel and try to sort of show people that there's so much going on up here. You know, across all of the major cities, Edinburgh in particular, the startup scene is booming. We've got more companies than ever before coming through and doing amazing things. And video games is still at the heart of it. You know, we've now got uh, incredible companies who are building technology for games. So a couple of good examples would be Delta DNA and uh, Chili Connect. You know, so they started off building platforms for games. You know, Delta DNA does analytics for game developers and publishers, and Chili Connect is live ops. And they both got acquired by Unity. So they're being integrated into the world's biggest gaming platform, even as we speak. Um, that's huge. That's fantastic. And it still shows that Scotland has this real pioneering edge. But if you're looking at the sort of the, the, the mainstream press or even the digital and technology press, you're going to miss all of it. And, and the same with this, the Scottish Games Network. You know, we've got some incredible companies up here doing some fantastically good work. But the only way you would find out about it is if you follow the managing director on Facebook and you happen to see the post going, oh, yeah, by the way, our last game got two million downloads. Uh, just so you know, you're like, what? Two million downloads? That sounds like news to me. God damn it. It's like, why won't you tell me these things? Um, and so there's a real, 
I guess, issue with, it's not self-confidence, but just telling people what you're doing. Um, and so this is one of the things that I'm, I'm really sort of passionate about helping and, and trying to sort of showcase all of the good work that's being done up here. Because once you start digging into it, once you start looking into all of the things that are being done up here, we have absolutely world-class studios. We have world-class um, companies and developers and some great creative people. And I just think they need to be shouted about a little bit more, you know, even if I have to do it at knife point. <laughs> well, you did mention the Scottish Games Network, and uh, people can check that out online at scottishgames.net. I mean, are there any kind of um, Scottish games that we should be looking out for, or any, any that have come up recently, or you know that are coming up soon? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. There, there are some fantastically good ones. Um, one of the studios that you really should have on your radar is uh, an outfit in Glasgow called No Code. And No Code have done games like uh, Observation and Stories Untold. Uh, they've got, I mean, they've won more awards than. I think they know what to do with. They had to move into a longer office just so they had space to put all the trophies down. But they were doing some absolutely phenomenal work. Um, Hyperluminal Games in Dundee, a hunted cow up in Elgin, are doing an awful lot with MMORPGs. You know, in Elgin, which is in the Highlands, the middle of nowhere. We really do have a, a, an extraordinary range of people. You know, everyone knows about Rockstar, everyone knows about 4G Studios and Minecraft. But the rest of the sector kind of, again, flies under the radar. So I've just picked up a research grant to go out and actually map the sector in Scotland and see who's out there. Not just the studios and the tech companies, but the freelancers, the individual creators, the indies, the hobbyists, the whole lot, just to really try and capture for the first time ever um, exactly what it is that we've got. Because at the moment we're, we're criminally, you know, um, short-sighted about um, talking about the rest of the the rest of the world so yeah watch this space I, I've got strong suspicion there's a lot of people out there doing some incredible things that even I don't know about yet well Brian it's been incredible to talk about you know this amazing activity that's been happening in gaming north of the border you know both past present and future so uh, I'll put a link to the Scottish Games Network in our show notes if people want to check that out but it's been amazing talking to you and uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us this week it's been absolutely my pleasure guys anytime at all 